healthcare is broken, and the healthcare industry is not going to fix itself. Reconstructing Healthcare is a podcast series where we interview the rebel entrepreneurs working tirelessly to disrupt the health insurance marketplace. Join us as we break down everything that's wrong with the current healthcare system and provide you with a blueprint to create better results. Now, here's your host, Michael Maneri. Hello, this is Michael Maneri, and I want to welcome everyone to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast. Today, our guest is Marshall Allen, healthcare journalist for ProPublica. Marshall, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here. You bet. So here's the game plan. What we seek to do here on the show is challenge the status quo and educate our audience on non-traditional methods to lower their healthcare costs and improve value for their employees. Sound like something you'd like to help with? Love it. Let's go for it. All right, cool. So to get us started, I'm going to read a brief bio about you. So our audience has a little bit of context about who they're listening to, and then we'll jump into it. So Marsha Allen is an investigative journalist for ProPublica, a nonprofit news organization. And Marshall investigates why we pay so much for healthcare in the United States and get so little in return. He is one of the creators of ProPublica's Surgeon Scorecard, which published the complication rates for about 17,000 surgeons who perform eight common elective procedures. Allen's work has been honored with several journalism awards, including Harvard Kennedy School's 2011 Goldsmith Prize for Investigative Reporting, and also coming in as a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Local Reporting for work he did at the Las Vegas Sun, where he worked before coming to ProPublica in 2011. Before he was in journalism, Alan spent five years in full-time ministry, including three years in Nairobi, Kenya, and he has a master's degree in theology. Anything else uh, you'd like to share with the audience, Marshall? No, I think that kind of sums it up. I mean, I've listened to your podcast a good bit, and I really enjoy it. I like how you have all these vendors on who propose all these different solutions. And the thing is, there are solutions, right? And I feel like I'm kind of unusual uh, compared to your other guests. But what I've been doing for the past, wow, 13 years now, since 2006, I've been doing investigative stories about healthcare. And I always look at healthcare from the perspective of the patient and the person who's actually funding the healthcare, which ultimately I think is, you know, in in the employer-sponsored healthcare world, I would argue that it's the employee that's paying these costs because even the employer portion is coming out of employee compensation. And so I look at this from the perspective of the people who are paying the bills and who have to interact with the system. That's the patient or the the worker. And then, you know, I try and show, you know, sometimes the absurdities because it's it's not even close in terms of whether we are getting our money's worth in this healthcare system. It's not even close. And so what I do then is I try and find stories that maybe reframe things for people and help them understand it in a different way and also highlight the absurd ways the system is wasting our money. I want to talk today about a recent uh, article that you wrote about how, you know, the government and insurers really make it astonishingly easy to commit healthcare fraud. But before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit about ProPublica, the organization that you work for, and how you came to be a journalist focused on healthcare? ProPublica has been around for about a decade, and it's a nonprofit organization based in New York City. It's focused on investigative journalism. Like our name suggests, ProPublica, we're looking for journalism in the public interest. And so we're trying to find stories that highlight abuses of power, whether it's the government taking advantage of people or corporations or criminal justice or politics. We cover all different topics. We do a lot of coverage about healthcare. And we're trying to find ways where the public is being harmed in some way. And so we do a lot of coverage about healthcare. In the last few years, I've been focused almost exclusively on the cost of care. And mm-hmm. before that, I did a lot of stories about patient safety issues. And I've been covering healthcare since 2006. And 
when I was at the Las Vegas Sun newspaper, my editor came to me and said, hey, we want you to take over the healthcare beat. And the first words out of my mouth were, I can't imagine anything more boring than writing about healthcare because <laughs> I, th- I think I had read so many bad stories that came out of, off of press releases, you know, like the disease of the week stories and disease of the month stories and the latest technology that's going to, you know, save humanity. And, you know, when you're a healthcare journalist, you get buried in press releases because the industry has a lot of money and they want to influence the way we cover things. And so I think I'd read a lot of really bad healthcare stories and I just wasn't impressed. But I found right away that I was really wrong, that the stories that we do, people care about them deeply. You know, they care most of all about their health and maybe second to their health, they care about their money. And so healthcare journalism hits on both things really directly. Absolutely. No, I do think there's a big interest in it. And and not only because I, I work in the healthcare, I, I guess, payer industry, if you will. But I, I do think there is a lot of interest about, you know, how to how people can improve their own health and get better value from the systems. So Marshall, one of the things we discuss on the show is why healthcare costs continue to rise at, at rates four to six times general inflation. And, and what we've discovered in our dialogue with others is that, you know, the current healthcare delivery and payment system is, is actually designed for higher costs and, and really quite inefficient. You know, one of the inefficiencies is, is the amount of fraud, waste, and abuse that payers unknowingly pay for in their healthcare claims. And we had a, a vendor on here on one of the podcast episodes, 4C, which, which focuses on that. But I tell you what, you recently wrote an article that really gives great color to this topic. So that's what I'd like to discuss today. I think you published it in the last few weeks. Would you mind just giving the audience just a high-level overview of, of the article and, and what you discovered? Yeah, absolutely. So the story I told is a kind of a case study about a personal trainer in Fort Worth, Texas, in a suburb of Fort Worth. His name is David Williams. And David Williams um, did not have any type of medical license. He didn't have any medical degree. But what he did is he obtained NPI numbers. So the NPI numbers stands for National Provider Identifier. And those are given out by Medicare It's like a unique identifier that every healthcare provider in the country has, and also organizations can get them. And this is really the key that people need to start billing insurance plans. So any insurance claim or healthcare claim has a spot on there for the NPI number. And if you don't have an NPI on a claim, it's not a valid claim. And so David Williams, all he did was he applied to Medicare for an NPI number in his real name, with his real address, real phone number. And when they asked for the, on the taxonomy what type of medical provider you are, he selected a category for sports medicine, basically saying that he was a sports medicine physician, when actually he does have a PhD in kinesiology. Um, but obviously, that's a lot different than being a medical doctor um, right. who's licensed. Right. And so he, he basically, I mean, he lied on his application for his NPI number, And the real shocking, I mean, one of the shocking things that this story revealed is that Medicare does not check the MPI applications to make sure that they are accurate. So anybody could apply for an NPI number and you could get one in about 10 minutes online if you want to lie about it. If you want to lie and say, I'm a medical doctor, they won't check and they'll give you an NPI. So Armed with an NPI, he began submitting false claims to insurance companies. Now, what he would do, his side of this, mm-hmm. is that he did nothing wrong because he was trying to help people have better health. So he would um, 
Now, if some of these people do workouts, you know, just physical fitness, jumping jacks, push-ups, burpees, not medically necessary, not (laughs) ordered by a doctor, not ordered (laughs) by a doctor, just to be clear. And then he would, he would file claims with the insurance companies as if they had had level five office visits, which are the most intensive, you know, 45 minute to an hour long meetings with a clinician, a doctor in their clinic. So he would file false claims saying that these workouts were medical doctor exams. And it worked because he billed as an out-of-network doctor. So Mm -hmm. he didn't go through any of the credentialing process that any of the big insurers would have. And by the way, the insurers were the big ones. United Healthcare, Aetna, and Cigna were the three that were highlighted in this case, but I think others were also involved. So this is not an unusual thing. This is the norm. I mean, this case study, as extreme as it is, highlights what is the norm in our healthcare payment system. Medicare doesn't check NPIs and health insurers don't check out-of-network medical providers. So the insurers never checked. He continued to bill them and he billed them also for a lot of cases where the people did not actually do workouts too. And this is how eventually he got caught. So eventually this all came out of a, a court case. He's now in federal prison. But over the course of more than four years, he billed the health insurance companies for more than $25 million, and he got reimbursed by them. He got paid more than $4 million. And right. most of that money came from United Healthcare. That is incredible. And what's, what's crazy about this is he also had a criminal record. So Medicare, when they're giving somebody you know, an MPI number, not only are they not checking to see if they are actually a licensed provider, but they're not checking for a criminal background. That's correct. Yeah. So this story really highlights a lot of gaping holes in the system of accountability of our payments. So he had, before he did the spree of false billing, he had been convicted of false billing, felony conviction for falsifying billing records to get reimbursed from um, a county for autism services for his son. So his son has autism and he said that his son was getting services from a provider and then created fake invoices to get reimbursed for those services, which never actually happened. And he got reimbursed for that. He got a felony conviction for that. And then he also got a felony conviction for child abuse for um, related to one of his other sons or his other son, I should say. He has two sons. That put him in state jail in Texas for about two years. During that two years, I obtained some letters that he wrote from jail, and he really then, while he was in prison and jail there, hatched this plan to expand his business of false billing. And so what he did was he started, he got out of jail in 2012, at the end of 2012, he started recruiting other personal trainers to work with him. Mm-hmm. And the other personal trainers did not know this was fraudulent, but that's how he expanded his network into multiple states. And then he would submit all these bills. And primarily the biggest losers here were the self-funded plans um, because United was not fully insured on a lot of these plans. And so Southwest Airlines was probably the biggest loser. And I don't have the story in front of me, but it might've been almost $2 million that was paid out of Southwest pocket through this fraud because so many of their flight attendants had signed up for these personal training sessions with this scammer. What I find fascinating about that is is how this guy figured out how to get around the traditional health plan design to make it no cost to consumers. Generally, there'll be a deductible, there'll be coinsurance, especially if he's out of network. 
most of the clients, you know, should have had to pay their deductible, then their coinsurance, and they likely would have been balanced billed, right, for any amount over that uh, outer network reimbursement level. But he just simply waived all of the out-of-pocket liability, knowing that once the charges, you know, pushed through the deductible amount, he would get paid. You know, as long as it went on, I find it amazing that people didn't find it odd when they received their EOBs from the insurer, which would have shown them, hey, you owe this money. But he's actually saying, ah, don't worry about it. You don't know anything. It's actually a case where the fraud benefited the employee because they weren't getting charged what they were actually supposed to get charged, right? Right. And he obviously had a shrewd plan to do that. You know, he waived the deductibles. The employees weren't paying anything out of pocket. And after this went on for a little while, the employees did start to complain. So it's not like the employees never clued in. And this is what kind of brings us to the other, maybe even the most astounding part of the story. So the benefit of having a nice big federal lawsuit or a criminal case that resulted in a trial is that it and it results in a huge trove of documents mm-hmm. that for me as an investigative reporter, I can read through those documents and then I can tell the story using the actual documents, the real testimony and the real documents from the case. So there are several things about this that are really astounding. So one of them that makes the story so fascinating is that in 2013, Christmas of 2013, so this, this guy comes out of jail at the end of 2012 and starts this false billing spree and starts bringing in all this money. Well, this guy had not made a lot of money in his career. I mean, as a personal trainer, he was bringing in very little money. He was divorced, had, again, had these three kids. Christmas of 2013, he gives his three kids iPads for Christmas. And his ex-wife kind of wondered, like, where's he getting all this money, you know? And she knew about his previous false billing conviction and obviously the child abuse conviction. Mm -hmm. And she was co-parenting these three kids. So the kids come home with iPads. And a few months later, she's looking at one of these iPads and she notices the little messaging icon has lit up with some messages available. She clicks on it. And somehow that iPad had been connected to her ex-husband's personal messaging account. So maybe through the cloud or maybe through the iTunes account. Yep. Yep. There's a glitch. So, of course, what's she going to do? She starts reading, and she happens to be a physical therapist. So she knows how the billing system works, and she knows how the NPI system works, and she knows that her ex-husband is not licensed. And lo and behold, she's reading all these messages from a lot of them, flight attendants for Southwest Airlines, who are messaging her ex-husband saying, hey, I'm so glad um, my insurance is going to cover my workouts. Here's my insurance card here's my group number. Can you cover my workouts too? And so he is verifying to them that he can cover it and then he's approving it. And so basically she was aware that this was a scam. So she um, gets in touch with her dad, who you can imagine is not a fan of his former son-in-law. Right. And they start reading through these messages and reporting him to Aetna, Cigna and United Healthcare. So in about the fall of 2014, these reports start going from the ex-wife and her dad to these three big insurance companies. And this is where the story gets even more astounding because the insurance companies were told that this was happening and they still didn't stop it. So they said, they both said they were on the phone when they called Aetna. The dad called Aetna. And they said that Aetna told them, they asked him for his member number. And he said, well, I'm, I'm not a member with you. I'm just trying to report fraud 
that's going on within your plan. And they said, well, if you're not a member, we don't have any way for you to report this. Only Aetna members can make these reports. (laughs) So he's trying to do the right thing and report the fraud. And the insurance company is basically saying, well, we don't have a way for you to report it. It turns out the ex-wife was covered by Aetna. So she was able to then make the report with Aetna. They did the same with Cigna. They did the same with United Healthcare. And they said every time they reported, the insurance companies might take the information in, but they never got calls back. They never showed any sense of urgency. They never jumped on this like, yes, fraud. What do you mean? Oh, that sounds like you've got it nailed down. Send us the messages. Tell us what's happening. Right. They barely requested any extra information. And so for months and for years, the dad and the ex-wife reported this to Aetna, Cigna, and United. And to their knowledge, nothing was even happening. It was going on and on, and they were able to verify it was going on because they kept reading the messages on the iPad. So the insurance carriers, they get a report of fraud and they, and they essentially do nothing, which contradicts, and you mentioned this in the article, you know, insurance carriers, if asked, will, will tell you know, most people like, hey, we've got your back. You know, we're working hard to you know, keep costs down and, and make healthcare affordable. I mean, this seems to contradict that. Well, it certainly does. And I mean, um, you know, you've talked about this a lot. This is the reason for the existence of your podcast, right? Mm -hmm. But think about it this way. The insurance companies make more money the more money is spent. So a lot of times they're taking a percentage of the overall total as a little slice of their profit. So let's say their profit margin is 3%, which sounds pretty small, right? Yep. Well, the bigger they can make the pie the more dollars are in their 3% of revenue. That's right. So if they want to keep increasing their returns, they need those costs on the fully insured plans to keep rising. And then on the self-funded plans, it's not even their money to begin with. So again, Southwest Airlines was paying these bills, not United Healthcare. They got paid to administer the claims, but it actually costs money for them to investigate claims and make sure that they're legitimate. That's actually taking their staff time. That's an expense. That's a hassle. They have to crack down on the doctors who are in their network and they're reticent to do that. And so really the incentive of the insurance companies or the third-party administrators in a lot of cases is not to take action and not to look very closely. So in the trial, there were top people from the special investigations units for all three of the big insurers, Aetna, Cigna, and United Healthcare. Mm-hmm. And they said, again, without irony in the trial, they verified and they said that the entire payment system is based on trust. It's like the honor system. <laughs> Meanwhile, they are presiding over, the private insurers are presiding over $1.2 trillion a year in payments based on the honor system, which is absurd. So you have $1.2 trillion available in this pool of money. It's known, it's well-known, in fact, the insurers will all say this, that organized crime is involved in fraud, that the providers, the doctors, hospitals are gaming the system with the way they code things, they upcode things, they unbundle things. They're, they're creating a system of schemes to try and take more money than they deserve, which are fraudulent schemes. Their incentive is not to catch this stuff. And so anybody who doesn't sort of begin to wake up to this is being incredibly naive. And then the point that I always try and make is that the employers managing these plans are spending their employees' compensation on all of this. 
So as the money gets taken and as the healthcare costs rise, and by the way, they estimate that it's 10%. Again, no one's keeping track of how much is lost to fraud, but every expert I said said it's at least 10%, which if that's true, it's hundreds of billions of dollars being lost to fraud. So we're losing all this money to fraud and it's employee compensation that's being spent on this. And so the, the costs keep going up. Our compensation is going toward the high costs. And then we don't have as much money for wage increases and, and other things that, that our families need. Oh, it's, it's robbing our society of money that could be you know, spent in better places like education, basic needs like food and clothing, you know, retirement savings. I mean, it's, it's robbing our society of those things. We had a great interview with 4C about you know, fraud, waste, and abuse, but I think the specifics of the examples in the article are really telling. And if you don't mind, um, I just kind of wanted to, you know, at a high level, kind of read through a couple of these. I think it's really going to give our, our audience just a clue about, you know, how the big carriers, they don't care. So for Cigna, basically when they find out that this guy is not a licensed provider, they send them a letter. They say, hey, you owe us $175,000. So he switched to MPI numbers, continues to bill them. And then Cigna just sent him another letter in 2016 that he owes more. But that was it. That's all they did. Aetna did the same thing. Sent him a letter saying he wasn't licensed. He owed 338000 Sent a few more letters. This guy says he'll refund them some money. Never did. And switches MPI numbers and bills them for an additional three hundred k United Healthcare, <laughs> which <laughs> this is truly unbelievable. They find out, again, send him a letter, right? Saying he's not licensed, owes them 636000 for inappropriate payments. But instead of demanding repayment, they basically offer to pay themselves back out of future billings from him, essentially giving him like a license to maintain his scam. And, and this guy, you know, did the same thing, right? Switched to MPI numbers and continued to bill him. But right, right. So yeah, United's was especially absurd because at the same time they were saying you're not qualified to bill us because you're not a licensed doctor. They were saying, if you don't pay us back, we're going to dock your future payments so that we get our money back. And they didn't yeah. just say it once. They said it in letter after letter to him because, of course, he didn't respond and just start paying them back. In letter after letter, they kept saying, you're not licensed. You're not allowed to bill us. And if you don't pay us back, we're going to offset your future payments. I guess, you know, as you read through these articles, you have to wonder, so is the extent that the insurance company is going to look out for the employer, the payer's best interest is you find some fraud, you're going to send them some letters. And that's about it. Another question that comes up is, wouldn't it be logical to report this activity to the authorities? Yes. I want to just backtrack. So I, I, I will get to that, but I want to backtrack because we kind of sped past another absurdity here. And that's that he got multiple NPI numbers. So he didn't just get the one NPI, right. he got the one NPI. Then when he got caught, he created new NPI numbers and Medicare kept giving him new NPI numbers. So this is what also allowed his scam to continue. They would catch him, he would create new NPI numbers and keep billing them. And they caught him with 20 NPI numbers at the end of the day. Did Medicare ever comment on why they would give the same individual more NPI numbers? So the other 19 were under the names of different organizations. So they weren't individual NPIs, okay. but he used his same name, same address, same phone number on all the applications. So what Medicare said is, we are not allowed by federal regulations to verify that the information on NPIs is correct. That's what they said. I mean, that's absurd. 
it's absurd because you wouldn't think that you'd need a regulation to do something that's common sense, right? Especially something as important as an NPI. You don't. You wouldn't think that you'd need Congress to tell you to do that or HHS to write it into the rules. But that's that's what their story is, and they are sticking to it. Unreal. Unreal. But you had asked if the insurers reported it at all to the state regulators. So I got the file about this case from the Texas Department of Insurance. And at some point in 2015, someone made a report to the Texas Department of Insurance. But it doesn't they redacted who made the report. So I don't know for sure who made the report. But at that time, it was January of 2015, the three different companies were in the process of identifying what was going on. So I think Cigna was the first one that identified this problem. And Mm -hmm. Cigna is the company that cut him off. The others sent really weakly worded letters and let it continue. Now, Cigna did keep getting billed for more with new NPI numbers. So I'm not trying to suggest that Cigna didn't continue to be taken by it. (laughs) But, But at least they were more forceful by saying, hey, this is wrong and we're cutting you off. So someone did report it to the Texas Department of Insurance, which promptly set the case aside because they said they didn't have the resources to focus on it. And so it wasn't until years later in 2017 that United Healthcare finally fed up with this guy that keeps creating new NPI numbers and billing them. United Healthcare then reported him again to the FBI and the Texas Department of Insurance, and then they launched an investigation, and that's what led to his arrest. But it took them forever to do that. So I guess there's a couple of questions that come up is, do the insurance carriers have no way to stop the scam? Even if he's getting new MPI numbers, there's no way to even, you know, look for a person's name associated with the MPI because it seems like he was able to continue to perpetuate it. A good starting place, which again, you wouldn't think that you'd need to make someone do something that's common sense, but a good starting place would be for the insurance companies to verify that they're out of network providers are actually providers. <laughs> they, could have, they could have checked at any point. They could have checked all these bills and seen that these were filed by somebody who's not even licensed. So he's billing for medical exams that would only be performed by a doctor, but he's not a doctor. And that's easy to check. I can show anybody how to do that in about 20 seconds online. You can check if someone's a licensed medical doctor. Mm-hmm. So there's no excuse to me for insurance companies not to verify that somebody is a licensed doctor. Right. And is their response, well, we auto adjudicate claims and so therefore we don't. Yep. Yeah. They said as long as the claim is filled out correctly, it gets paid. And again, this guy was not a criminal mastermind. Okay. That's the thing I also want to emphasize. This is not a guy who suddenly outsmarted the system. He just found out how much disregard the system had for checking anything. And then he was brazen enough to just keep submitting bills and collecting the money. You know, some people might say, you know, like United is a great example. Okay. United has Optum as their subsidiary. So some of these letters, you know, were from Optum, which actually, you know, hires its services out to other health plans to fight fraud, waste, and abuse. Right. So they've got, Optum's got this analytics team and they've got all these investigators and, you know, they're going to step in and they're going to stop this problem. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, how complicated would it be so someone goes, oh, well, he created new NPIs. So how in the world would you be able to stop that? Well, how about you take a look at the people who begin billing you with a new NPI number? Maybe put something in your little algorithm where you check, oh, wow, this guy's only submitting claims for level five office visits. 
So on doctor visits, you can do level one to five. Level one is like a common typical visit that takes no time and doesn't require a lot of complexity. Level five is supposed to be a rarely used code because it's a complex visit that's supposed to take about an hour or so. Yeah. Well, so he was only submitting level five claims. So, you know, wouldn't you be able to, in your analytics, put together some type of a query to see, hey, look at these people with new NPIs who only bill for level five office visits. Maybe we should take a look at that and see why is this particular new provider only doing level fives? That's sort of unusual. That's supposed to be a rarely used code. And I think this is where a lot of the work I do is really just exposing the facade because there's all this marketing and hiding behind the complexity of the system hiding behind the complexity of medicine and healthcare decision-making to act as if, well, we can't figure this out. There's a facade that's been created that has lulled everybody into this sense of passivity. Just keep handing over more money. That's pretty much what they want from us. And then we're supposed to just sort of lean back and just keep giving them more. What a lot of my stories do is expose the facade for what it is. It's a facade. It's a money-making system where the players in the system, pharmaceutical companies, PBMs, health insurers, hospitals, doctors, they are actually colluding together against the people funding the system. So you think that the system is set up for you because you're the one paying the bills and you're the one getting the treatment. Right. But actually, it's set up, it's designed for these big players to extract as much money as they possibly can out of us, sometimes by very deceptive and wasteful means. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of the, if you look at the spectrum of providers and players in the marketplace, I mean, they look at employers as a blank check, right? I mean, how can we get more money out of the payer of healthcare, whether it's Medicare, whether it's the employer-sponsored marketplace, you know, or the individual marketplace? They reframe all these conversations, right? They use terminology that hides the problem. And so what what I am trying to do is really pierce this facade. It really has to start at the employee level. Employees have to realize that this is their money being taken from them without their consent and without their involvement, and that they need to push up against their HR managers and CFOs and CEOs and say, stop passing this cost on to us. So it starts at the employee level. There has to be change at multiple levels. Sure. And then the executives of these companies need to stop passing the cost on to the workers, which is exactly what's been happening over the last five and 10 and 20 years. They just shift the cost onto their employees to the point that people can't afford it. I mean, a lot of people, you know, one in five Americans, they say, now has medical debt in collections. And the people who are covered in employer-sponsored plans are bearing the brunt of it. You've got many people who have insurance that essentially can't afford healthcare because they have outrageous deductibles and they don't have $4,000 in the bank to spend on the deductible. So it's gone to an extreme and it's not sustainable. Yeah, right. And I think we are at at a breaking point here. And I think That's maybe the only silver lining is that people are ready to hear this now more and more because they do recognize the absurdity of the expense and they can't really afford it anymore. But I'm wondering in your conversations with employers, how receptive are they to change? How eager are they to do something different versus continue being passive? 
Well, I think it's a good question. And I will tell you, we do a lot of education on what's wrong with the system, on misaligned incentives, you know, on the fact that as an employer, you do have the ability to lower your healthcare costs and control costs. You just have to do things differently. But there's a lot of inertia out there. Given that we've had a very solid economy for so long, people have just been complacent. And to be honest, I do think it's going to take another recession to finally get people motivated into taking some different approaches. You've got the employers out there that are, they get it. They're willing to make changes. There are plenty of those out there, but I would tell you, it feels like a lot of people are still complacent and it's just, uh, you can talk to your blue in the face, right? Lead a horse to the water, but you can't make him drink. So when you guys go and you advise these employers, you kind of present to them a menu of options and try and help them understand how one option might be more disruptive and possibly save them money, but it would require maybe more disruption versus something where yeah. you can still have your big box buka option. And a lot of employers, and you would think even some of the, the jumbo employers, they're opposed to anything that will cause disruption. This is truly where a lot of times, I don't want to be critical of those that sit in human resources, but this is where the decision and the discussion really needs to be at a higher level at the C-suite with the CFO and the CEO. Because too often, if it sits in human resources, it's more of a focus on disruption as opposed to actually what can we do to lower costs and reduce employee out-of-pocket expense. Right. And I think this is why employees need to wake up to this and start pushing back from the bottom, right? Because the cost is being passed on to the employees. It's equaling thousands of dollars in additional expense that are coming out of their paychecks, a lot of cases, just because of their premiums going up, but also the deductibles rising, right? You're talking thousands of extra dollars that these um, workers and their families are spending because of the complacency of their employers, and at some point, you have to wonder, I mean, does that create a certain amount of liability for the employers where they have just said, well, I'm just going to keep passing the cost on to the workers. I don't know what that would look like. I don't know if it would ever happen because I don't know that employees are going to sort of wake up to it either, you know, but I do know there's a pain point, you know, there's a, there's a real pain point for a lot of people. And so maybe people are more open to listening now than before. And the thing is, it just doesn't stop. I think there's a grassroots movement across the country of benefits consultants and brokers who are working hard to educate the marketplace about all of the inefficiencies with traditional purchasing methods and getting them to focus on alternative ways of, of doing things. Employers, if I had one wish, it would be this. You can take this problem of rising healthcare costs, you can actually turn it into a competitive advantage because if you work with a sharp broker consultant to put in play, correct some of the misaligned incentives and put in play a lot of strategies to lower healthcare costs, you can do things to give yourself a competitive advantage by giving employees actually better healthcare, making it no cost to low cost. It's a slow process. Right, right. Yeah, that's discouraging, right? Well, I'm an optimistic person. I think change is hard. It happens slowly, but I'm encouraged by the work that you do. I'm encouraged by the work that a lot of entrepreneurs and startups are doing to try to improve the value of what we're getting. I mean, you you, you mentioned, you know, we're we're not getting good value for, you know, for our healthcare. I think there's a lot of people who realize that we're working hard to change it. It's got to be a group effort. 
right? And so this article was great from the standpoint that it really calls out that insurance carriers, publicly traded companies who are traded on Wall Street, I mean, their incentives are not to lower healthcare costs. And this is just another example of that. And so to our listeners, employers out there, I think it's just, we have to perpetuate that message that you really have to start looking at working with, with vendors who are willing to have aligned incentives. If the incentives aren't aligned, then you should probably rethink that relationship. I want to encourage your listeners too. I'm very interested in hearing from employers and from people who are wrestling through these decisions right now. And I can be emailed. I mean, you can find me online easily, but my email is marshall.allen at propublica.org. And so please um, reach out to me and I would love to hear your stories and we can talk off the record if people prefer. I mean, I'm just trying to learn as much as I can about it because I I really think this is one of the big issues um, of our time. And I think it's just so important because people can spend less, right? And this is the hope that, you know, I've told a lot of stories of employers who have turned it around and saved a lot of money for their workers and reduced what they spend while improving their benefits. So there are solutions out there. It's just that people need to reach out and find them. And so if there's anybody out there in the employer world, I would love to, um, I'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Well, this podcast gets out to a pretty wide audience. So uh, I'm hoping somebody will take you up on that. Marshall, for people who want to read more of your content, where can they go to, uh, to check it out? So go to propublica.org. And you can also, I've called this series of the health insurance hustle. You can Google health insurance hustle. Maybe you could put a link if you have show notes or something. You could yep. put a link to all the stories. I've done a series of stories now over the last couple of years that have really laid out the incentives of the health insurance industry and that show the absurdities of how our money is being taken and and blown. I did a whole series um, in 2017 about wasted medicine, just all the, they estimate that a third of the money that's spent on healthcare is wasted, just squandered. And so even if we could reduce the waste, we would uh, have enough to insure every person in the country um, at a lot less cost. And so I just think, you know, until the people paying, which are the employers and the workers, until they actually push back, nothing is going to change. But once they do push back, they have a lot of power that they can leverage. And so that's really what I'm trying to do is empower the people who are funding all of this to start using the power that they have as the people paying the bills to demand change. And I think it is possible. I agree wholeheartedly. Really appreciate you you coming on the show. I think it's been a great discussion and, and hopefully insightful for our listeners. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. If you liked what you heard here, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you're interested in continuing the conversation, please visit us at www.reconstructinghealthcare.com where you can access the show notes for this episode and links to ProPublica's website where you can find more of Marshall Allen's work and his contact information. Lastly, be sure to check out some of the free resources on our website including links to recent articles and books, as well as our Health Plan Innovator Scorecard, where you can benchmark your health plan against a plan that is truly designed to lower healthcare costs and improve value for your employees. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Reconstructing Healthcare Podcast.